On this episode of Resi Week, Samsung has a new Bixby speaker. Are you selling shades? Monoprice is trying to be the Wayfair of tech, and Disney has a potential streaming service. All this and more on this episode of Resi Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is Resi Week, episode 132, Homeowner Trust. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Christie Digital and by FSR. Welcome to Resi Week. This is your weekly wrap-up of all the latest news and stories for the residential AV industry. I'm your host, Matt D. Scott for avnation.tv. And today I'm pleased to be joined by Jimmy Paskey. He is the sales manager at Surgex Residential. How are you, sir? Very good, very good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Then we have the duo of the Knots. No, the Jasons or the Griffins. We'll make it up. We have Jason Knott <laughs> from CE Pro. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me. And we have Jason Griffin. He is the partner uh, development manager for One Vision Resources and a co-host on the Home Tech Podcast. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm going to do my best to confuse the two of you a lot. Should be a good time. Um, it'll be fantastic. The next, uh, you know, 25 minutes or so, we are going to kick this on or kick this off with a story that comes to us from CE Pro and Jason Knott. The Samsung Galaxy Home Smart Speaker has been unveiled. It's powered by Harman. It is a, a fairly large-ish looking speaker. Unfortunately, specs and a price point, of course, haven't been released, but it's going to uh, support Bixby voice control. It's powered by Harman AKG. It's got six drivers, eight microphones, a subwoofer, and Mr. Knott lovingly refers to it as an urn. So Jason Knott, I'm going to start with you. Uh, when we look at this this product, one, they seem to be a little late to the game. Like we've, we've berated Apple extensively for being late to the game with the HomePod. Samsung's finally bringing this out, uh, you know, uh, gosh, I don't even know how many years behind everyone else. Is this something that is going to excite that many people other than hardcore Samsung fans? Uh, it's a very good question. I mean, I, I would um, default to, I guess you have to, um, uh, you, you have to give them chops from the audio quality standpoint because they have Harman. They're using Harman equipment, which we know is, mm-hmm. is top notch. So, um, from that standpoint, I would think for integrators at least, um, and this uh, this technology in there that that um, apparently can direct the sound towards the individual in the room um, and away from the wall uh, and create a quote unquote surround sound experience. So, um, you know, I don't. That's a very good question that I really can't answer as to whether who's going to be super excited about it, but. Uh, as you say, I lovingly referred to it as an urn, and I did mention that I did read a review that referred to it as the cauldron pot or cauldron fondue pot barbecue grill. So urn was much nicer, I think. Very, very much so. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, I'm going to come to you trying to break up the Jasons here. <sighs> Mr. Knott referenced a, a really important part on this whole steerable sound thing in the story and in some of the coverage, they refer to it as, you know, something where if you place it up against a wall, it's not going to backfire into the wall and have, you know, 
issues with the sound field that way, but it also supposedly will allow you to say high Bixby sound steer and it will kind of shape that sound towards you unless you're single or you're in a room where no one else likes you. So you're sitting by yourself. How effective, like, like it, to me, that just read as a uber gimmicky type thing. Is that something that excites you? you know, we're, we're getting ready for Cedia, right? And I just feel mm-hmm. like Samsung does so much for the Cedia channel. That Samsung frame is awesome. That's something our integrator business can really rally behind and make money on and, and make customers, their customers happy with. I, I just feel like, at least for the time frame that we're in, you know, these products from Google and, and Amazon and, and now Samsung, I just feel like we, we fall way short of the promise and, and potentially we'll get there, I suppose. Um, but it's not something I don't think the, uh, the Cedia channel is going to rally behind. And I, I'm, I'm not for mass consumer products in general. Very good. So, so it, it is very gimmicky, I would say. Very good. Mr. Griffin, given what the other gentlemen have said, given that this is, is most likely not directed towards our channel mm-hmm. uh, where we all work fairly extensively, is this something that excites you in any way, even not, not just from the, the tech standpoint, but just the, the moving forward of them getting in and another player or any, what's it here mm-hmm. to be excited about? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think for me, for sure, it's, it's clear that the biggest thing to get excited about just from a standpoint of seeing what, what's finally able to materialize is Bixby. We've been hearing about Bixby for a long time. I know Samsung has had a number of issues getting it to market. I'm not sure exactly what sort of iteration it's in in the smartphones, if that's even out there. I, I know that's in play, but I admittedly don't know a lot about it. What I can say is watching the smart home as closely as I do, everything that I've heard about Bixby has been around, you know, the delays in the timelines. And, and I suspect that's probably part of the reason why, as we talked about earlier, that they're a little late to the party with this device is that I, I know they've had quite a few issues with Bixby and getting that into shape. So, I, you know, I can tell you that I, I won't be buying one of these. I've, I've got an Echo here at home and I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that for now. I do think that's going to be a challenge for them. I think a lot of the, the smart home, the, the smart speaker market, the connected market is probably gotten a little bit saturated at this point relative certainly to what it used to be a few years ago. But, you know, I think some people are, are going are gonna to pick it up, probably some Samsung fans and, and people who are, are Harman Kardon fans and are in it for sound quality. It's got some impressive specifications in terms of audio quality. And so I expect that it'll sound pretty good. But yeah, the biggest thing that I'm, I'm excited to not necessarily experience firsthand, but at least hear about is, is what that user experience is like uh, for Bixby. Very good. All right, gentlemen, let's move on to our next story of the day. This comes to us from our residential systems and our good friend, Todd Anthony Puma. Uh, It's entitled Throwing Shade. He's saying, if you are not selling shading solutions, you're missing out on a very large opportunity. Long and short, uh, shades are one of those few products that end users and consumers get extremely excited about when they're motorized. It's a lot of, uh, you know, movement that you can actually see opposed to some of the other really cool things that we get excited about in automation. Jimmy, I'm going to come back to you on this. You know, this is something that we've continued to see the channel do. Move away bit, little bits um, away from being just traditional AV, you know, theater room, two channel type people into some of these more, you know, heavily consumer centric products like shading. 
Mr. Puma mentions that this is a, can be a very profitable thing. Is that, is that what's driving people moving towards products like shades within the, within the industry? I almost wonder, and Jason Griffin was a part of a discussion uh, weeks back on, on, the, on a topic like this where the AV guys in the home, he's very trusted. I think we've got the great thing about the CDA channel of business, the integration business uh, that we're in, is that we seem to have the trust of the homeowner. I, there are guys that stay at these homes without the homeowner, without an estate manager present. I think that just goes to show how much the homeowner trusts them. And with that, I believe that the AV contractor, the integrator, is being asked more and more to do things that are outside of his AV wheelhouse. So lighting is is all the buzz. Shading seems to be all the buzz. And yeah, I mean, it, it gives us something to look forward to and make money on and you know create an awesome experience for that homeowner. And that's, I think, what the homeowner wants ultimately. Very good. Mr. Griffin, I'll come to you on this. Um, what what Jimmy mentioned was a lot of a lot about trust, but it's also a large shift. It's a lot. It, it can be a very large shift to get out of the bits and bytes, if you will, of traditional AV integration and get into uh, some of the more designer parts of this. Whether you're going to partner with a, a shade professional or whether you're going to do this completely within within your own house, how difficult is it? For most integrators who, albeit, are usually more comfortable with, again, the, the tech technology aspect of this, to shift into these, these kind of products and, and deal with fabrics and, you know, the design aesthetic of the best type of shade for that room mm -hmm. to fit the rest of the ambiance. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Jimmy that, that home technology professionals are in a fantastic position to, to get into this sort of offering, and, and there's all kinds of great reasons why you would. Of course, the margins are great. The value prop is really easy to understand for homeowners. Once they're in and functional, they really have the wow factor, and so they lead to referrals. And, and I love shades. As a former integrator, I, I really enjoyed selling and installing those and seeing those installations come together was really cool. But with all that said, to your point, Matt, there are a lot of challenges that come with doing shades. And on the surface, it's, it's, a, little bit, it's a little bit misleading almost, right? Or, or deceptive, I should say, because yeah. it doesn't seem like it should be that difficult. You measure the opening and you, you hang the shade and you hook up the wires and program it. And, you know, in theory, it is that simple. But yeah, you start to get into different pocket conditions, uh, working very closely with designers on fabric selection, understanding all of the variables that go into that. And then of course, from a project management perspective, you've really, really got to be on top of your game and make sure that pockets are being built correctly and wires are being landed in the appropriate places because it's, it's fairly high stakes. And if you don't get everything right along the course of that project, you can get there on install day and it can turn into a whole big can of worms. So it can be very difficult to pull off correctly and you've really got to have the resources. I, I would say it's not for the faint of heart necessarily to get into but if if you've got the resources and the and the dedication to get into it and give it the appropriate amount of attention then it's a fantastic category and, and something i think every integrator should at least be taking a hard look at very good uh, matt let me throw yeah. in uh, you know an integrator that i interviewed a couple of years ago just as a perfect example you know a lot of integrators go out there and say look we can do everything we're the jack of all trades and 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 this guy powerful systems in los angeles he specifically used the lighting and shade category as a differentiator he went to market 
as the lighting and shade expert. Mm -hmm. And it differentiated him in the space from the other guys who were the jack of all trades. But he specifically told me how it, it drew them closer to the interior design community. And he wanted to have closer partnerships with them. It, it, it takes a lot because a lot of integrators are type A personalities. They want to run the show when they're, but he had to, you know, consciously step back and know in a joint sales presentation with the interior designer that he would uh, let them take the lead. And he's now locked in with the interior design community in Los Angeles purely by making this kind of a differentiator for his business. Well, Jason, let me, let me follow up on that. Is this not something that uh, essentially once you make that decision, as long as you're not, you know, flirting with shades, as long as you make a full commitment to be in a relationship with shades, this can be a huge market for you. I, I, I personally know of uh, a, a former integrator essentially in New York who 25 years ago was a large home theater dealer. And now all they do is lighting in shades because the margins are so great. Everything uh, for him just seems easier. Is this one of those few, maybe not few areas, but, but relatively few areas where you can't just kind of walk along this. You really have to jump in with both feet. Well, Jason Griffin hit the nail on the head there. It's not easy. You have to, you know, the, especially let's just say in a large home environment, you have to get the specifics on the, the power, the, the openings. Remember as a shade uh, rolls up, it gets bigger. So the shade itself moves away from the glass. There's all sorts of things that happen when you're doing shades that um, it's, it's a lot more complicated than it sounds. Um, but I wish I had the percentage of the number of integrators in front of me um, who are doing shades I'm going to guess it's well over 50%. And I bet you, you know, five or 10 years ago, it was, you know, near single digit type numbers. So, uh, you know, why should we not embrace this category? I think I'd flip it that way. Very good. All right, gentlemen, let's move on to our next story of the day. This comes to us from strategy.com and uh, the one and only Ted Green. Mono Price, the king of cut rate cables, is expanding into a carbon collection of home decor items. Mr. Griffin, I'm going to start with you on this one. Um, we've watched Monoprice uh, become fairly loved and hated, <laughs> depending who you talk to within the category. I've talked to quite a few dealers who absolutely swear by them. I've talked to quite a few integrators who will never let you know a Monoprice ca cable show up on their site. When we start to see monoprice expand, and, and this honestly kind of dovetails really nicely into uh, Todd's piece, when we are seeing them expand into a range of essentially home goods, not to mention adding you know computers and receivers and, and, and things like that, is monoprice making a play, in your opinion, to not necessarily be a snap AV, but really become a much larger, hey, we're gonna supply stuff that you use every day and, and make it easy to purchase. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly not a snap AV unless snap AV is considering a move into uh, blenders and, and kitchen appliances. I, I looked on monoprice today and saw that as I was prepping for the show, it, it's an interesting move. It's not shocking to me. They've obviously built up a lot of infrastructure there and they're a very successful business. Love it, love them or hate them. Mm -hmm. They're, they're very well known and, and whether, you know, even just inside of our, 
our, our bubble here in the Cedia world and the pro install world, we, we all know them, but their market is, is way bigger, obviously, than just our, our channel. And certainly they're, I would have to imagine, beloved by a whole cadre of home technology enthusiasts and people out there who, who do it themselves. So they've got a large market. They've got a lot of infrastructure put in place. I'd imagine the way they've, they've structured some of these new offerings is, is probably pretty low risk for them. I don't imagine they're holding a lot of this inventory, right? At this point, they're, mm. they're driving traffic to their site and they're, they're probably doing some sort of creative, I don't know, affiliate arrangements or something with these other, with these other providers. So for them, it's, you know, it's probably all upside. I've, I've got nothing against it. I've, I've never ordered anything from Monoprice personally, but, but I, I wouldn't shy away from it either. If I had a, a project I was doing at home and needed a couple of, of, of cables just to hook up some basic things like, uh, you know, no, no qualms here, but I get it. Uh, it's, it's not the highest quality gear I'm, I'm sure, but to, to each his own. And I think for, for monoprice, the move makes a ton of sense. Very good. Mr. Not when I read this piece, the, honestly, the phrase that came to mind was that this is almost becoming like a wayfair for guys, a wayfair for tech people. Um, are, are we reading too much into this? Is this something that really doesn't need to be a news piece? Is this something that you'll, you, you foresee uh, becoming a brand that's going to continue to show up on, you know, the CE Pro top supplier lists beyond cables? Are we going to start going to them for theater chairs? Yeah. Um, it did show up. It's funny in the brand analysis of very minuscule uh, numbers, um, whether it's going to grow or not. It's a, it's a very good question. Um, but I don't see how this is any different than us talking about Amazon or Google or anybody else uh, who might be attacking the space at a, mar at a margin level basis. These guys have a different type of business model. They're selling cables and, you know, few years ago, they actually had a six by six uh, multi-room audio switcher out. Um, I don't know if they still even have that, but you know, um, almost half of the integrators sell furniture. So maybe that's what attracted them to the space. Maybe there's margin uh, built in there for them. Um, I'm guessing they're sourcing a lot of the product, if not all of it from overseas. So there's some, uh, some margin uh, there for them, but you know, I have the same opinion as Jason Griffin. I don't know where it's going to go, but I don't have anything against them. <laughs> Very good. All right, Mr. Paskey. Um, both of our, our Griffins, or sorry, both of our Jasons. Gosh, there's too many names here. Um, not. Are not convinced that this is something that'll fly, don't really care, or kind of, I don't want to say wishy-washy over the whole thing, but just it is what it is. If they create a like an integrator level, you know, kind of like a Wayfair for business thing where you can purchase some of these products at a slightly discounted rate so that you can make a little bit of money on it. Is this something that you can see integrators going after or are they going to stick to their tried and true uh, avenues for purchasing, again, not so much cable, but some of these more just consumery pieces? I think they'll give the channel options. And I think uh, while economic times are fine, maybe their business is okay to growing. When economic times take a turn, if they do, uh, then perhaps their business blossoms a bit more. You know, it, I think uh, SnapAV and Amazon have shown that there's, there's plenty of business out there. And if Monoprice can bring any kind of logistics benefit to a dealer, then sure, I, I think that'd be pretty strong. 
Uh, if it's just about commodities, um, I think then ADI and Avid and you know Ingram and and our national distributors our distribution uh, guys out there probably be a bit more concerned with mono price. Gotcha. Very good. All right, gentlemen, let's go on to our last story of the day, and we'll wrap this this podcast up. This comes to us from the New York Times. Disney's, or sorry, Disney is reporting earnings, but the focus is definitely on its streaming service. Uh, Mr. Knott, I want to start with you on this. Uh, Disney, this has been talked about for, gosh, almost two years now. Uh, there was obviously some major press that happened when they started to, uh, shall we say, rescind the rights to a lot of their their shows and movies from Netflix and, and some of the other streaming services because they knew this was coming. Are we, are, are we very close to the age of all of these streaming services not being any different than the, the big issues that we had with uh, big cable in the past with big telco? Well, I think the real story here for me is that, um, I saw some recent data that showed that while streaming, of course, has grown by, you know, 30 some odd percent or whatever it is per year, the amount of uh, percentage of people who are streaming. They also noted that the percentage of people who, who rent to buy or rent a stream service to, to then capture that um, media had increased by almost 10%. And it actually was making the case that hard drive or hard media server business is not dead yet. And mm-hmm. that here was a, here was a significant um, um, uptick in the number of people who are holding hard media. So, and, that's ba- and that's from streaming media. So I think the message for integrators out of this is streaming media is not the enemy for the media service business ultimately. And we might see a, a resurgence of the, of the media server business. I probably sidetracked your question. A little bit, but no, it's good. No, we're going to follow that rabbit hole for a minute. Mr. Paskey, um, given what Mr. Knott said uh, about this becoming potentially an avenue to, you know, hard copy versions of things, at what point do integrators start to look at streaming services and then uh, capture devices and things such as that and start to have to determine how they're going to help in this and if there's any liability there for copyright infringement or anything like that, because what, what, what Mr. Not alluded to there was, you know, essentially I'm watching daredevil on Netflix and I'm going to save it and, and, and keep a copy of it so I can watch it offline, even, you know, kind of potentially bypassing there because like Netflix, you can download and, and save for later but you can only watch that for three or four days before the license quote unquote expires. At what point does this become not unlike, you know, the free Android TV boxes that, mm-hmm. you know, integrators have to supply the waiver of, Hey, we'll, we'll plug this in for you, but we take no liability for what you do with this. I think that question of liability is, you know, over the years, MP3 and how wonderful it was to get all this free music. That didn't last long. In the grand scheme of things, it didn't last long. It seemed like it did. It seemed like, you know, I worked for Sony at the time and we were all going, how the hell is this even possible? Um, Kscape, another company I was with for a brief period, you know, that that legal issue went on for, I think it was 10 years. It seemed like 10 years. And, and that was just over DVD and DVD was a, a dead format by the time they got to a ruling. But I think it goes to show that if Hollywood doesn't get theirs, then we're not going to get ours, you know, as an integrator. 
So we probably want to back whatever we feel most comfortable with as it relates to the examples we've already been given over the years with music and, and movies. And then use that as our, here's how we're going to march forward. I, I'd probably say stay away from anything that we have to produce a waiver for. <laughs> but definitely, definitely do the waiver thing. It sounds like if that can get you out of liability, you're going to want it. <laughs> Well, at least try and cover cover yourself a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Griffin, I, we're going to wrap with you on this one. And um, I, I want to shift focus just a little bit uh, back to the original piece. And, and one of the things that I found really interesting in this article was he mentioned uh, the, the CEO there, Mr. Igner, mentioned that they don't think that they need to produce content on a level that Netflix is producing content that maybe Amazon is producing content for. Is this something where you feel that Disney can produce a streaming service, you know, charge for it, obviously, the, the way that they will market it extensively, which we all know they will, um, but then kind of sit back on their, their library, their litany of, of titles that they have and say, oh, yeah, here you go. You can watch Sound of Music and, you know, The Mermaid and anything else you want, but we're not necessarily going to keep up. Uh, even at a percentage of what the other content creators are doing? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. I, I saw that quote in the story and it made me scratch my head a little bit too. I, I don't know if what he's saying is like right out of the gate that they don't have to do that. I mean, that would be a tall order. I think, I think we reported on the podcast I do a couple of weeks ago that um, I want to say that Netflix was going to spend like a billion dollars or something on original production. I could be misquoting that, but that's anyways, pretty accurate. Yeah. Netflix has become a powerhouse in terms of original content production. And it's been a fascinating, I mean, to me, the, the evolution of, of video and streaming and how people consume video in the home over the last two to three years has been unquestionably one of the most fascinating trends to watch. And I think it's only going to continue. I think that, Disney will come to market with a, a pretty compelling offering and they're going to have, like you said, that whole library of content that they can, that they can come out of the gate with. But yeah, you know, I do think to compete in the long run and really get people's attention, they are going to have to produce original content. And I can't remember the name of the article or, or frankly, even what the content context of it was, but uh, reading an opinion piece recently about streaming media and how, certain companies are coming to market and they think that, well, let's just, you know, let's just take the content that we have, right? Let's, let's package it up and let's make it available online and voila, we have a streaming service. And the, uh, the author, the point he was trying to make is like, that's not actually what people are attracted to. Streaming services need to be something special in their own right. And I believe Disney is not going to be immune from that. They're going to have to come out with an offering that, that's compelling, that has new original content that's fresh, that people want to watch. And I think they've got enough content of their own to certainly get it off the ground and, and, and generate some healthy uh, subscriber numbers. But in the long run, if they really want to compete with, with Netflix and the other companies uh, of that kind out there, I know Apple um, is getting ready to spend a whole bunch of money on original content. Amazon does a whole bunch already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's great. It's high quality content. People love it. And it's, it's the new normal. So I think Disney's going to have to, uh, they're going to have to compete with that. Very good. I, uh, the only thing I will add to that, uh, Jason, is if we all, I, I believe, I don't know about you, Jimmy, but um, the majority of us have small kids. My, my son will watch Cars repeatedly yep. forever. 
He doesn't have to watch anything else. <laughs> so if they have a streaming service where I can pay 10 bucks and just continually watch cars, I'll probably yeah. buy it. Well, well, though, you bring that up and my kids love their three or four shows on, on Amazon that are Amazon originals, prime mm-hmm. originals, right? Tumble leaf, uh, stinky and dirty. You know, there's these silly shows that, like nobody's, I'd never heard of them before, but they're, they're prime originals and, and my kids, my kids love them. So they're growing up in a, in a day and age where that's, again, that's the new normal and, and Disney's going to have to, they're going to have to jump on that bandwagon. Very good. All right, gentlemen, let's leave it there and uh, wrap this up. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Mr. Knott, if people want to connect with you, uh, learn more about CE Pro, where can they do that? They can always go to cepro.com or they can follow me on Twitter at Jason W. Knott. Excellent. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, Mr. Paschke, thanks again for, yep. uh, for, for joining us today. If people want to connect with you, learn more about Surgex, where can they do that? You can check out uh, at SurgexAV on Twitter or go to ESP, Electronic Systems Protection, SurgeX.com. Excellent. Thanks again. Mr. Griffin, again, thank you for being here. If people want to connect with you, learn more about One Vision Resources, uh, catch your uh, home tech podcast, which I still have never been a guest of, uh, where can they do that? You make me feel so awful every time. Every I'm time. I'm get you on, Matt. No, no. Now I'm just going to avoid it so the joke <laughs> continues. Yeah. So, um, you know, on LinkedIn is a great place to connect with me. Just search Jason Griffin on there. And uh, that's a great place to connect, especially if you're interested in learning about One Vision. And if you're interested in checking out the podcast, we're at hometech.fm or just search Home Tech Podcast on any of the major podcast directories. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, for myself, if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at Matt D. Scott on Twitter and every other social platform. But more importantly, please stop by avnation.tv. You'll find this show as well as a wide variety of our other shows with all the verticals that we cover. When you visit the website, please take a moment to check out our underwriters. We are extremely thankful for their support and ask that you support them as well. Thanks again for watching. That's all the time we have for this episode of Resi Week. 